At this time, please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. From Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be with you. For those who don't know me, my name is Nick Polico, and I'm, uh, as Brent mentioned, I'm the pastor of Redemption Church in Palis Heights, which is actually an extension of this congregation, and I get to come here and preach to you occasionally, and then uh, fly down the road to Palis in time for our service. And for the next couple of weeks, um, covering for Jeff, I want to look together at this very famous passage from the book of Ephesians, which talks to us about our warfare with the powers of evil, which is a topic that I think many of us often don't know what to do with. And in the kind of tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, which I wholeheartedly embrace, which we here at Trinity are a part of, at least denominationally, we tend to sort of, I think, believe in, in spiritual warfare sort of nominally, but because we don't want to be the crazy people that are like casting a demon out when our car won't start, we just sort of go to the other extreme and chalk up everything that is wrong in the world and in our own hearts to uh, phenomena that are more easy for us to manage and grasp and explain. And yet we are given in striking terms in this passage a, a sort of graphic illustration of the battle that we, that we face. And so I want to invite you to pray with me for the help of the Holy Spirit as we consider this passage together these coming weeks. Let's pray together. Lord, if we, if we do have an enemy, which your word says we do, then uh, certainly he does not appreciate us reading about his tactics and how to stand firm in you. And so we pray not only that we would uh, be, be filled with faith in what your word teaches and that we would receive what you have for us, but we pray that you yourself would fight for us because on our own we are weak, but you are strong. And we pray for your help now to understand and to respond to what you say to us here in this text. 
And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You're going to need a bigger boat. Most of you know that phrase. If you don't, it's one of the most iconic lines from one of the greatest and most iconic films of all time, Jaws. And uh, there are some spoiler alerts coming, but it's a 44-year-old movie, so I don't have a lot of sympathy for you. I'm sorry. But that phrase, you're going to need a bigger boat, is uttered by Police Chief Martin Brody upon a, a small fishing boat called the Orca, manned by only him and two other men who have set out to try to find, catch, and kill a great white shark that's been terrorizing the local beaches. And when Brody gets his first glimpse of the shark and of its size and of what a formidable opponent this fish is, he steps back sort of in shock and utters to the captain of the boat, whose name is Quint, you're going to need a bigger boat. And of course, as the movie progresses, it turns out that that is absolutely true. They should have had a bigger boat. Things do not end well for that boat. The reason I mention this is because we frequently, I think, find ourselves aware that evil is real. And those of us who believe in Jesus and who believe in sin and grace, it's, it's not like we don't believe that evil is real, that it's lurking in our own hearts, that it, it's all over the place in the world around us, but we have an inadequate understanding of the nature of that evil, and therefore we often have an inadequate view of what it will take to confront that evil. And we need a bigger boat. You know, for example, just, just by way of just sort of illustration, if we think about you know, our sort of political and economic uh, perspectives. You know, some of us, if we're on one end of the spectrum, might think, you know, what's really wrong with the world and what's really wrong with this country is the threat of government that's too big. And if we just keep government in check so it leaves us alone, our society will be fine. Or you might think, no, the government can actually stand up for the little guy. Really, the threat is the power of corporations and big businesses that enrich themselves while exploiting other people. And the reason both of those perspectives exist is because they both see something that is true. But they're inadequate to explain the reality of evil because even if we elect the right people, even if we have the right folks on the Supreme Court, even if we pass the right laws, even if businesses are functioning as ethically as we would hope them to, there is still going to be evil in the world. We can't, it's not that we reject engagement in political and economic activity or solutions. It's just that those solutions are not enough. They're inadequate. We're going to need a bigger boat to face the shark that is terrorizing us. And so let's look at, we're not going to go through this entire passage today, but just sort of the first half of it and, and see some of what the Apostle Paul affirms. And the first is that, as we've already, of course, been making clear, we are in a spiritual battle. A spiritual one. He says in the first couple of verses, starting in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, if you've ever read through the book of Acts, which is a New Testament book that talks about the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, you could very understandably say, Paul, 
you wrestled against flesh and blood quite a bit. What do you mean we do not wrestle against flesh and blood? Flesh and blood human beings, Paul, are the ones who have stoned you, who have slandered you, who have imprisoned you, who have lied about you, who have chased you down. You've wrestled against flesh and blood extravagantly, extraordinarily. The Apostle Paul understands this. He's just saying that in his wrestling with his opponents, in his encounters with evil, there's an evil behind the evil. There's an evil above the evil. There's an evil working through the evil, and it's part of this spiritual realm. He's not suggesting that the devil is the only source of evil. He's not saying that we are good people who are led astray by evil forces, simply that spiritual forces take already flawed and corrupt people and make us worse, tempt us to be worse. And that when we encounter evil in ourselves and in the world, there is more there than meets the eye. His very language that sounds kind of strange to us about rulers and authorities helps to communicate this because those phrases were used to describe civil rulers, many of whom the Apostle Paul could point to as committing great evil. The point he's making in using this language is that they're, they are not the full and final embodiment of what is wrong in the world. When he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, it's like he would be saying to us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the governors, against the government, against the cosmic senators over this present darkness. It's as though he's saying the wickedness you see in the world is bigger and more sinister than what meets the eye. There was, a, I don't know how many of you saw this, a, a lot of people, I think, found this really unusual, didn't know what to do with it. Even I saw it, and I said, wow, this is fascinating. Uh, but in the House of Representatives, uh, the chaplain, a Jesuit priest named Patrick Conroy, uh, was reported, this was in kind of all the major news outlets, one of them said, you know things are bad in Congress when the chaplain's morning prayer on the House floor sounds like an exorcism. Anybody read this? Yeah. On Thursday, the Reverend Patrick Conroy said during his prayer that it had been, quote, a difficult and contentious week in which darker spirits seemed to have been at play in the people's house. And so part of his prayer included the, the words, In your most holy name I now cast out all spirits of darkness from this chamber, spirits not from you. And he elaborated after the fact and told one reporter, I was on the House floor Tuesday, and to me it felt different than other days. It felt like there was something going on beyond just political disagreement. The energy of the House was off. No one was relishing what was happening. Now, did this particular priest at this moment have an accurate spiritual antenna? Was there some unusual demonic manifestation? Did he just have something bad for breakfast? I don't know. But according to the teaching of God's Word, when there is wickedness, when there is slander, when there is corruption, there is more than meets the eye. And so his impulse to pray 
beyond just a humanistic level. It seems to make a great deal of biblical sense. And I notice it had never actually struck me before re- reading this passage, which I've read probably hundreds of times in my life, until this week when I was getting ready uh, to preach to you. But do you realize that immediately before this, this section on the, the armor of God, the Apostle Paul has been giving instructions about marriage to wives and husbands. And he's been giving instruction about parenting. And he's been given, giving instruction about slaves and masters relating to each other. And it's out of these exhortations about regular life that he then says, now finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Which leads me to believe that as the Apostle Paul was writing about our everyday relationships, he realized these are the places where you are attacked. And so now I need to to finish writing to this church by telling them as they're trying to have a godly marriage of kindness and love and as they're trying to raise their kids and as they're dealing with issues at work, I better tell them about the armor of God because they're going to need it. Because the devil is coming after their marriages and their relationships with their kids and how they relate to the people they work with. Not just when a person is turning green and her head is spinning, but when a husband and wife give up on communicating. Or when a dad just loses it and screams at his kids. Or when a person shows up to work and and doesn't work while he's there, but just, you know, sort of fools around on Facebook and then collects his paycheck. These are the places where evil is trying to harm us. The Apostle Paul wants us to see. Now, I want to address an objection that I think could really naturally arise that, all right, Nick, if, if we believe that in those who oppose us, that in those who seek to do us wrong, that in those we have conflict with, there are these like sinister spiritual forces at work, then the already ridiculous amount of demonization of other people that's taking place in our culture right now is just going to get exponentially worse. Because we already slander our opponents when we just disagree with them. Blast people on social media, talk about those idiots in Washington. So if, if we think that they're not just being dumb or ineffective, but that they're actually like the devils behind it, we're going to hate them all the more. Speak even worse about them. This is going to be bad for culture. And what I want to say is actually it will have the exact opposite effect. The more we believe that there is more than meets the eye in our conflict and in the evil in our world, the more we'll actually be patient with one another and have compassion. And the more we'll have humility and view ourselves as susceptible Martin Luther King Jr., I've, I've been reading through uh, for the first time a really big collection of his works, and I'm not that far into it, but I'm already seeing that he strikes a number of the same notes over and over again. And one of them, uh, which he repeats, can be found, for example, in a little essay he wrote called Nonviolence and Racial Justice. It's an essay about his philosophy of nonviolent resistance. And he's delineating the essence and the purpose and the motivations of this philosophy of his. And at one point he writes, a third characteristic of this method of nonviolence is that the attack is directed against forces of evil rather than against persons who are caught in those forces. 
And to paraphrase what he says over and over again, we oppose evil. And when we oppose evil, our final goal is not ultimately to shame or to destroy those who commit evil. It's to achieve reconciliation with them so that we can experience beloved community, to get to community together with them. This was a man who was extremely alert to the reality of evil and who devoted his life to going to war against it. But what he maintained was that our war is against evil. It's against forces that are bigger than any one individual. And our goal, even when somebody is walking in a way, is entirely caught up in that evil and causing us harm, our goal in opposing their evil is not to destroy them or to feel any contempt towards them. It's to see them redeemed and reconciled with us. And if that is our mindset, we will actually be more gentle people. Even in casual conversation about dysfunction in Illinois government or in Washington. The Apostle Paul, you know, affirms this sort of posture in another place, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. He's giving instruction to a young pastor named Timothy about how to handle those who oppose him, and he says, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Gently instruct your opponents. Patiently. Not with disdain. Not with violence, even of spirit, towards them. And so when we see people acting evil in a way that drives us crazy, the response, according to this teaching, that there is actually more evil there than meets the eye, is to respond with gentleness. And to respond with prayer. Not with anger and contempt. The more we have this sort of a mindset, actually, the more kind we will be in response to those who oppose us in any, any realm of life. So that's the first thing we see is that the Apostle Paul simply affirms that we are in a spiritual battle. And he, he goes on to tell us it's a, it's a very strategic spiritual battle. We have a strategic enemy. If you look again... Uh, what he refers to in, in verse 13 when he's telling us to take up the whole armor of God, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. Sorry, I went down a verse uh, uh, too far. Uh, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What he's saying is you have an enemy who is constantly scheming and strategizing and plotting against you. He's calculating. And how does he do this? You know, the word devil, it comes, you know, our word diabolical comes from it, diabolos, but it's, it's a word that really actually means something like accuser or slanderer. What Paul is saying is that you have an enemy who's coming after you in a very methodical and calculating way, and his primary weapon against you is slander. What, what does that mean? How does somebody... Well, I mean, we've already seen... Uh, if you flip back, you don't have to flip there, but in chapter 4, Paul warns us against giving a foothold to the devil by allowing anger to take a root in our heart and become, becoming slanderous towards other people. Verse 4, 26, Be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And dropping down a few verses. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. So planting seeds of hostility within us. But not only that, we're told if we kind of span out and look across Scripture that we have an enemy who slanders us. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 10, there's this scene that the Apostle John is given of what takes place in these sort of heavenly realms that the Apostle Paul is talking about. And he says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. In other words, you have, I don't know exactly what is going on. I don't understand why the devil accuses us before God, but the point that so many have pointed out from this and other passages is that one of the schemes of the devil is to whisper in the ear of God's people, you are irredeemable. You're not a real Christian. Or you can't possibly be effective for God's kingdom. Now, I am not saying that confession of sin or acknowledging what is wrong with us is slander. You know, part of the sort of current cultural narrative that we're breathing in is that if we want to love somebody and love ourselves and our only job is to affirm, 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 that's obviously not the message of the Word of God which says we're sinners in need of forgiveness. But saying we're sinners in need of forgiveness is not slander because it's true. But saying we are worthless and unable to receive forgiveness, that is slander because it is not true. The message of the Word of God is that we are sinful, fallen, yes, but we are image bearers of the living God He loved us so much that He sent His only Son for us, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That we are sinful, that we have committed evil in forsaking God and in living lives of selfishness instead of care for others the way we are ought to. But that we are loved and that we are redeemable through faith in Christ. And what our enemy wants us to think is no, we're not to take confession of sin which is meant to lead to repentance and comfort and joy and turn it into just self-flagellation and condemnation. Look at you. Twenty years into following Jesus and you're still experiencing temptation? You're not over this yet? Please. That is slander. That is not from the Holy Spirit. We have an enemy who plants seeds of slander in us towards others, who slanders us, and who slanders God. This is how the story of the Bible essentially kicks off in the garden so nearly after God creates our first parents. So soon after, I should say. God creates our first parents and the serpent comes and says, did God really say not to eat this? Look, he just knows if you do that you'll be like him. He's holding out on you. He doesn't really have your best interest in mind. You shouldn't run towards him. You should run away from him. 
Those are the schemes of the devil. It's to plant lies and slander. It is not, and probably for good reason, in such a materialistic kind of intellectualized culture as ours where it's easy for us to ignore the supernatural, it is not typically through obvious manifestations of the demonic. Not in Hinsdale, Illinois. That wouldn't be a good, a good strategy. It's deception and it's slander. It's creating contempt for God, for ourselves, and for others. And so that is why the Apostle Paul speaks of this comprehensive resistance we need to mount. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Take up the whole armor that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. It's like he's being redundant. Stand and having done everything you need to stand, I want you to stand. I don't know if any of you have ever read the, the book by Tim O'Brien, The Things They Carried. It's about soldiers in Vietnam. And a great deal of the book is actually descriptions of everything that these soldiers in the jungles in Vietnam had to carry. The, the, cha- the first chapter of the book, starting in the second paragraph, reads like this. The things they carried were largely determined by necessity. Among the necessities or near necessities were P38 can openers, pocket knives, heat tabs, wristwatches, dog tags, mosquito repellent, chewing gum, can- this is a little bit of a PG-rated version I'm going to read to you, so it's a little edited, candy, cigarettes, salt tablets, packets of Kool-Aid, lighters, matches, sewing kits, military payment certificates, sea rations, and two or three canteens of water. Together, these weighed between 15 and 20 pounds, depending upon a man's habits or rate of metabolism. Henry Dobbins, who was a big man, carried extra rations. He was especially fond of canned peaches and heavy syrup over pound cake. Dave Jensen, who practiced field hygiene, carried a toothbrush, dental floss, and several hotel-sized bars of soap he'd stolen on R&R in Sydney, Australia. Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried tranquilizers until he was shot. It was standard operating procedure. They all carried steel helmets that weighed five pounds, including the liner and camouflage for cover. They carried the standard fatigue jackets and trousers. Very few carried underwear. On their feet, they carried jungle boots, 2.1 pounds. And Dave Jensen carried three pairs of socks and a can of Dr. Scholl's foot powder as a precaution against trench foot. Norman Bowker carried a diary. Pat Riley carried comic books. Kiowa a devout Baptist, carried an illustrated New Testament that had been presented to him by his father who taught Sunday school in Oklahoma City. As a hedge against bad times, he also carried his grandmother's distrust of the white man, his grandfather's old hunting hatchet. Necessity dictate, as necessity dictated, because the land was mined and booby-trapped, it was standard operating procedure for every man to carry a steel-centered, nylon-covered flak jacket, which weighed 6.7 pounds, but which on hot days seemed much heavier. Because he could die so quickly, each man carried at least one large compressed bandage, usually in the helmet band for easy access. Because the nights were cold and because the monsoons were wet, each carried a green plastic poncho that could be used as a raincoat or ground sheet or makeshift tent with its quilted liner. The poncho weighed almost two pounds, but it was worth every ounce. And it goes on and on. And the point is, these men who are in battle did everything they could to be ready to withstand the assaults against them. Everything possible. Down to, I need foot powder so my feet don't rot, let alone 
bullet coming at me. We have to be strategic. And it's not complicated. This sort of war we're called to fight. The Apostle Paul gives this description of the armor, which we're not really going to get into, but it starts with this. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. We have an enemy whose calculating attacks consist of lies and slander. And we defend ourselves with truth. And we have to be strategic about getting it into, into our heart and carrying it on the field of battle. And so finally, a third thing, and we'll be brief here, is that we have to engage in this battle by grace, by the strength of God. In verse 12, the Apostle Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's an actual word for wrestling, like hand-to-hand combat. I spent a couple years in junior high and high school on a wrestling team. I wasn't any good, but I do remember this, that when you actually wrestle competitively, when you are done, at least for me, you are more physically exhausted than after any other activity you've ever done in your life. I have never, ever felt more physical exhaustion than I have after losing a three-minute wrestling match because you are literally using every single muscle in your body. Nothing gets isolated and left out. And, and there's no break in it. There's no stopping at first base and waiting for the next pitch. There's no walking back to the huddle. There's no time. It, it's just crazy. And we're told that this combat we're facing is wrestling. It is in our face. It's hand-to-hand. It's, it's going to use a great deal of, of strength. And that's why we're told to be strong in the Lord and to be Greek nerds with you for a minute. It literally actually says be strengthened. You know, it's passive. You have to receive strength for this wrestling match. And you don't just receive it from the Lord. We're told we receive it in the Lord. It's this language that some of you are familiar with, which is frequent, especially in the book of Ephesians, that the Christian life is not a life simply of faith in a distant Jesus. It's a life of being dynamically connected to him so that in a mysterious way his life is, is in us and we are able to be strengthened by him because he is the one who has already conquered the foe against whom we wrestle. If you look back at chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians. And listen, I know we're late in the sermon, and there are a lot of words going by in this prayer, but listen to what Paul says. He prays for them that they would be able to comprehend what is the immeasurable greatness of his, God's power, toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all, listen to the language, rule and authority and power and dominion. Everything we're wrestling against. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're given this magnificent picture of the triumph of our Savior over every hostile spiritual force that comes at us. And we're given a vision of the Christian life where we don't just receive marching orders from Jesus, but by faith we're connected to Him. 
and as his spirit works in us to help us to embrace and walk in his truth, we actually have the strength to wrestle against the evil that comes at us. So to be really, really practical, what might this look like? I have some really good friends, uh, another married couple named Nate and Leah. None of you know them. They live far away. And uh, years ago, probably about 10 years ago, we were spending some time together. They were sharing with me and Jen that they'd been really having a lot of conflict in their marriage in recent months. It had a lot of change in their life, a lot of upheaval, a lot of pressure, and they just were not getting along. And Leah said at one point on a Sunday morning when they were fighting before church, she stopped and just prayed, Lord, please fight for us. She, she stopped and realized, you know, really, I'm not really wrestling ultimately with my husband here. There's a more intense battle going on. And she called upon the name of the Lord for help. The uh, Christian therapist who's written a bunch of books, who's kind of well-known, Dan Allender, has helped me to have a more concrete understanding of spiritual warfare in my life. Because I'm such a good Presbyterian and it's just so hard for me to give my attention to this reality, simply by asking the question, where in your life has evil tried to harm you? If you want to know where the battle is, just ask that question. Where has evil harmed you? When you were a kid, where is evil trying to harm you right now? Where do you see evil doing harm in the lives of your neighbors, in your family? Where is evil doing harm in the world around you as you witness what goes on? Where is evil doing harm? We are told that this is a, a deeper battle, that we're, we need a bigger boat, but we have one. We're united to the Christ who has already had all of his enemies placed under his feet, who one day will defeat them fully and finally and reign in righteousness and peace. And the more we keep our eyes on the ball, so to speak, to the true nature of the evil that surrounds us, the more we will be vigilant to stay close to our Savior, the more we will be compassionate to those who wrong us or who self-destruct or cause the world to self-destruct. And so we are, we are called to stand in God's truth and to take up his armor. Because we have a foe who is bigger than we often realize. But we have a Savior who can strengthen us for the battle. Let's pray together. And let's take a moment before I pray to lead us uh, to confess the places where we have agreed to go along with evil. Agreed to cooperate with it agreed to embrace lies and slander of ourselves or of God or of others, or simply failed to be alert. It's so easy. After you've had the chance to pray, I will lead us. And we pray going to a God who is gracious, a God who doesn't slander us, who tells the truth about us, but it's a truth that includes the fact that we are redeemable because of Christ. Let's pray together.
Lord, even though we, even those who are Christians, uh, just because of the secular, materialistic air we breathe, tend to be unalert to the reality of spiritual warfare. When we stop and we consider these things, it's, it's not hard to imagine the reality of dark forces in the spiritual realm. When we look at our lives and when we look at our neighbors and when we look at our world and we see the just overwhelming amount of evil. And yet we also see a world where there is such a tremendous amount of beauty and love and kindness and a sense of purpose that if we allow ourselves, it's not terribly difficult to imagine a good God who stands opposed to evil. And so we thank you for making sense of our situation, so to speak, with the diagnostics of Scripture. And as evil breathes down our neck, help us not to ignore it, help us also not to make too big a deal out of it and to become fearful, but to take our stand in the evil day clinging to you. Thank you that you sent, Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, to take our sins upon himself so that our debt would be paid, so that evil would have no claim on us because we are reconciled to you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Friends, the prophet Isaiah, centuries before Jesus came, prophesied about the one who through his death would bring the forgiveness of sins and free us from every claim of evil upon us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, by faith through the death of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.